Welcome to Rethinking Humanity Interviews. I'm Lacey Delane. Hi, I'm Sonia Larea. Hey, everybody. It's Saturday. How yeah. are you? What's up? We <laughs> hope you're doing good. Uh, it's a 3.30 p.m. Saturday afternoon. We've never done an uh, episode at this time, but we like this new slot. Yes. <laughs> Sonia, how are you doing? I'm okay. Today is gorgeous here in Atlanta. Yeah. It's sunny. It's a little cool, but it is beautiful. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm pretty good because this week, for those I'm sure most everybody out there knows, but January 20th was the presidential inauguration. And I got to tell you, Lacey, um, I was really moved. I became emotional watching it. It was just, we've been through a lot of turmoil here, as the rest of the world probably knows. Right. So seeing us get to that place um, with the inauguration was awesome. It was very historical. Yeah. We had the first woman of color, Indian descent, vice president, Kamala Harris. Woo! That's amazing. I'm so happy about that. I mean, honestly... Yeah, it's a little late, but yeah, yeah, yeah. here. I know. It was really, really moving. Um, just it's I, you know, I, I'm hopeful. And I know one of the things we talk about on this podcast is, is looking at different, living differently and being a better society. And uh, I just I have hope it's going to be um, a journey. It's not going to be easy. And there's right. so many things that we talk about. And but uh, that day was special. That's what I want to say. That day was yeah, special. it really was. And I will say, I feel like I think you know this about me, Sonia. I've been a bit jaded since the end of Andrew Yang's presidential campaign <laughs> about. Yes. And so I wasn't expecting really to feel much on Inauguration Day. I mean, I didn't really watch a whole lot because I was working, but um, but I definitely felt and do still feel a renewed sense of hope. Mm -hmm. And it just feels, um, it feels like we have uh, leadership that has some experience with integrity levels and, and the way things go in office now. And that feels really, really, really good. Yeah. And I think for you and I, I, I guess I shouldn't speak for you, but for me, because I got, did get involved, um, you know, on the local level with our politics here in Georgia, mm -hmm. I, I feel like, you know, each of us can make a difference. And I think that's one of the messages that yeah. we're kind of telling people now with our podcast. So uh, mm -hmm. hang in there and we can make the world a little better. <laughs> yeah, and we are already seeing some changes that I think are positive. Um, just from after January 20th. It's not that far off from January 20th. So, so yay. Yeah. For Sonia, I have some exciting news. Tell me. Ready? I'm yes. not going to say much. I'm just going to show you something. Okay. <laughs> you got your passport. Your passport. For those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about right now, check out episode 15. I'm not mm. going to say anything else, except I'm going to give you a little clue. Because I'm not, I want you to go listen to episode 15 so you can know where I'm going and what I'm doing. Right. But let me just let me just play a little little something something for you that might that might help. Okay. <laughs> That's all you get. That's all you get. All right. <laughs> oh wow! Everybody, go listen to the episode. Which one is it again? The last one. The last one we did. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Needless to say, I'm a little bit excited right now. I know, I know. With that, and yes. Mm -hmm. Yes, I have to tell everybody that I was 
I'm supposed to come to your place. I need to go there tomorrow to check out Quiet Punch. Yes. <laughs> yes. I've been inviting Sonia. Uh, Quiet Punch is one of our new partners, our first uh, podcast partner. I'm so proud. And um, this is this revolutionary, I would definitely call it revolutionary, way to do kickboxing or boxing in your home. And it is a lightweight square thing that's on, uh, not rubber bands. What are those things that you use? Jumper? No, I can't remember. Like a cable, like a cable kind of thing? They're like a cable, but I, I can't, okay. for whatever reason, can't think of the word right now. But anyway, they hook. And then you, it's very lightweight and then you just punch and it goes in your door frame. It's amazing. Awesome. I know. I need to try it out. Um, I yeah. love being physically active and the fact you can do it in your apartment is awesome. Yeah. So we're going to get some video of Sonia checking it out. <laughs> we'll share it somewhere, maybe on our Instagram at Rethinking Humanity or Twitter, which is uh, Rethinking Humanity as well. Um, so check that out. And if you're interested in Quiet Punch, it's quietpunch.com. 10% off with the code Rethinking Humanity at checkout. And also we get some um, support from them as well uh, as you, if you are to purchase from them. So check it out, see if you like it, uh, see what you think. I think for those of you who maybe aren't comfortable going to the gym right now, it's a great option and you have you don't have to have any experience. There's teaching videos that you can do that are amazing. So, video to you guys uh, soon. Cool. The other thing that's on Instagram that you might enjoy is our first ever bloopers video. Oh yeah. <laughs> that was fun. That was fun. Yeah. I actually enjoyed watching that. Um, I couldn't believe it. I was like, oh, this is pretty cute. And I had to watch it a couple times. So yeah, yeah. It, our awesome technical producer put that together. We didn't even ask him. He just did it. And um, and then he put it out and I'm like, props, Victor, props. So, <laughs> so yeah, check that out. That's again, Rethinking Humanity, at Rethinking Humanity on Instagram. Um, the last little shout out before we bring in our guest who is Andrew Phillip. We're gonna be talking about um, humanizing primary care today. We're so excited about this. We've been excited about this for a couple of weeks now. We wanna shout out to the Yang Gang Book Club. Uh, this month they're reading Blueprint for Revolution. Yes. Just got it. It is fabulous. So check it out. Wow. Sonia, you have one on the way too, right? Yes, I have one on the way and it will be read this week. I'm excited. <laughs> yes, I think I'm going to uh, I'm gonna finish mine this week as well. Uh, Victor's also uh, reading and I think uh, it looks good that we'll be a part of the Yang Gang Book Club's live discussion of the book, which is cool. They invited us to do that. So yay for that. And do we have um, a date? Do we want to tell people what day that is? I, I don't I think it's the 30th, but I don't okay. know the details. Okay. If Yang Gang Book Club is listening, feel free to tweet and or or comment or what have you in here so everybody will know. Um, the other thing everybody we would like for you to know is that we um, the fun time fun time program is another podcast that we love. They've of the interview that he did with me with music and conversely. Um, so check them out and check out check out that interview. All right. Cool. Ready, Sonia? Ready yes, for this? Ready. Okay. Awesome. All right. I'm going to introduce Andrew Phillip. He is a clinical psychologist, clinical health psychologist, senior director of clinical and population health at the Primary Care Development Corporation, which is a national nonprofit with impact in over 40 states and totaling 1.2 billion. 
1.2 billion with a B toward enhancing health equity through advocacy, investment, and practice transformation. That practice transformation is kind of what we're gonna be hitting on today. Um, so simply put, he is an advocate for integrated care. Another way to say that would be whole person care um, in a big way. And he is a fan in rethinking the way we do life. So we're happy to welcome Andrew Phillip. Yay. Oh, thank you. That, that's uh, <laughs> an introduction and probably a better way to put it than my usual uh, flowing dialogue. I'm, I'm happy to be here. This is exciting. Uh, and, and like you said, really kind of nice context in the world to, to be kicking off a conversation. Um, I think there is definitely some hope uh, that, there, that, that we've been struggling to come by for a while now. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Sonia? Um, yeah. No, I'm just really excited uh, to be having this conversation because I think um, we're living in a time, obviously, with COVID, that uh, the light has been shown on our healthcare and the lack thereof, right? Both primary care and, and, and all across the board, I guess you could speak to that, Andrew. Oh, my gosh. It's really, uh, you know, I think we all know, you know, the, the, the only, I would say, upside to the pandemic has been that on some level, although many different people, you know, we're all being impacted differently. There is this sort of shared experience here, and and you know, unfortunately, one of those shared experiences for a lot of us has been um, one worrying about our health, uh, and, and two, uh, really having to cope with just um, unbelievable levels of stress, of uncertainty, um, depression, sadness, loss, grief. Um, we are swirling in all of this right now, um, and so it's really brought a lot to the surface. Um, so it's, it's a timely conversation. Yeah, I, I hear you. I mean, I know we, we addressed this before, but it's this collectiveness of we're all having this experience. And it's not just in our country, you know, it's worldwide, which um, I know one of the parts of this that Lacey and I talk about is the mental health that is yeah. just so huge that um, hopefully we start to look at that, take a closer look at that. Yeah, and I think we are, um, you know, unfortunately we saw just um, as a nation, you know, CDC reported this, but um, just increases overall in, in, in symptoms of mental health conditions. Um, but also, uh, you know, we see this for healthcare providers themselves. Um, gosh, I mean, I hate to say it, but we've seen deaths of despair, things like suicide, um, increases in depression there too. So no one's really been immune to this, um, especially lately. And, you know, I think we've seen it's, or hit uh, communities of color, black communities specifically, especially hard. So those um, this health disparities have been exacerbated too. So it's, again, we've had this shared experience, but also um, some people have been hit especially hard. Yeah, for sure. Unfortunately, like that happens when we talk about disasters and sicknesses, disease and that kind of thing. And that's a sad thing. Tell us a little bit about you know, the first thing that I said earlier is that you are a clinical health psychologist. I particularly am a fan of psychology and therapy and how wonderful it is for people. Tell us a little bit about that before we get into primary care and how we can rethink that a little bit. Tell us about your psychological side and, um, you know, your passion in that area. I, I, my, my, talking about my psychological side could be a whole other discussion, but um, I'll share a little bit about my human side and my, and my professional side too. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I was—I've been interested in, in psychology and sort of human beings since I was a little kid. I think at eight years old, I, I knew I wanted to be a psychologist. Uh, 
But really what, what's always been interesting to me is that um, although we are very sort of similar biologically, sort of if you strip away, you know, we are all bones and, and, and blood and, you know, all organs and that kind of stuff. Um, and even our brains work quite similarly, yet we have these incredible differences between each other. Um, we act in different ways. We experience um, the world in different ways. And, and so, um, you know, that difference is, is just fascinating to me. And so I always kind of wanted to know more about other people. And uh, when I was a kid, I was introspective and you know, had problems like everyone else does, I think. Um, so I was on this path. Um, uh, you know, I did my formal schooling, went on to, you know, in, in undergraduate, um, you know, I was studying psychology, working in research labs, looking at um, specifically around addiction, uh, compulsive behaviors like gambling, but also substances. Um, and uh, I was working in, in inpatient psychiatry units uh, just on the weekends doing intakes. And so I was getting this experience and it was interesting. Um, it was also uh, in some ways a, like, sort of a call to action because especially working in the field of addictions, you know, no one will be surprised that it's challenging. It's challenging for patients, but also staff um, it's hard to sometimes see moves towards recovery and long-term goals. Um, but anyway, during that time, uh, I also happened to find myself in a class about um, health and psychology, which was not something I'd really heard of uh, connected before. And we were learning about the connection, I think, between uh, cancer and emotional health as far as outcomes go. And, and I was t just totally, it doesn't sort of seem groundbreaking, but I was totally swept away with the idea that um, the way that we get support emotionally, the way that we experience our emotions and the way that we cope actually changes our outcomes when it comes to um, surviving cancer. And that was just like, this is amazing. Uh, we have to do something with this. Um, and that was, you know, that was some years ago. And so a number of winding experiences later, I went on to grad school to really do something about that. I assembled different experiences around um, always working in kind of unusual settings for a psychologist. I, I worked in uh, um, neurology and burn units and, and like level one trauma centers, uh, palliative, palliative care, um, just places where I was usually the only behavioral health person. And one of the places that really um, kind of spoke to my experience the most was actually working in a, in a little uh, primary care, like family medical residency clinic in, in Alabama, actually. Um, and, and this was a clinic where um, we treated you know, underserved, um, predominantly low-income communities, people who certainly deserved high-quality care, but frankly didn't get it. Um, and, and so this was often their shot um, because they were on um, usually Medicare or, or, or Medicaid. They had about one visit a year that they'd really have access to. And so we were sort of their one shot, um, this one visit. And so it was me and like uh, 27 docs, these residents. And we would, in that visit that we had with that patient, we try to do everything we could for them. Um, but sometimes that meant that, even though I was kind of classically trained in psychotherapy, and so I was trained to do you know, 60, 90, two hour long visits, and these really sort of um, and, you know, soul searching experiences, um, I sometimes had five, 10, 15 minutes with people. I would see sometimes over 20 patients a day. Um, and that was just a different kind of experience um, and really taught me about the value of one, integrating care, and two, the importance of getting people care where they are and when they really need it. Yeah, that sounds like the foundations for what you're doing now, actually. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so, so now uh, I'm, uh, I've kind of moved through from being a direct care service provider to more of the national landscape. 
Um, so I've worked with the Department of Defense, with uh, VA, um, and also like national associations for behavioral health. Um, and where I am now, Primary Care Development Corporation that you mentioned, um, we're really focused on building up health equity. So making sure that everybody has a fair, equal, healthy shot and is actually getting what they need when it comes to healthcare. Um, and that's really what we were founded on. And so we work now to make sure that people who are in underserved communities, uh, especially are getting high quality care. When, when we think about primary care, we're talking about it really broadly. So if you think of primary care as like the base of the pyramid, like what are all the different services you might need at your sort of core entry point? So it's not just like getting your blood pressure done, it's also getting maybe your behavioral health needs met. Um, maybe it's also getting your OB uh, needs met. It could be, um, you know, having your any sort of other chronic illness addressed. So it's really pulling together um, these different aspects of, of care and trying to deliver them as best we can in primary care and communities. Can you um, help us and our listeners understand what exactly is a primary care is and and then kind of how you're thinking and your organization is working towards changing it to be better and more humanistic, we could call it. <laughs> yeah, and primary care is actually, hasn't always been around. We talk about it a lot, but it's it's sort of in the scheme of like healthcare and care, you know, as we know, it's sort of a new thing and, and uh, new as in like, you know, decades, decades old, but primary care is really like your first access point for care. Um, so um, for if you think of sort of the greatest number of people in our country, where do they kind of first go to get care? Um, primary care is sort of that base, it's your core access point for care. Um, and it's, it's best, primary care is comprehensive, so it's kind of meeting all of your needs. It's also comprehensive in the lifespan, so it's sort of, it's taking care of you when you are a child, a baby, uh, all the way up through old age. So it's sort of your core access point that follows you through. And it's a central point that kind of links together multiple different aspects of your care. So let's say you are, um, you know, I'm your primary care doc, but you're also being seen by a urologist, by a cardiologist, you're seen by, you know, you're getting other specialty care. All of that should really be routed back and kind of housed with your primary care doctor. So they're sort of um, your partner in knowing your whole health and everything that's going on and helping you navigate that because it can also be a pretty confusing mess otherwise. Um, yeah, I had a couple questions. You mentioned that when you were in school, you sort of realized, connected the dots to this, um, the emotional side with the physical. Would you say from that point on, like, where are we at today? How do other physicians see this connection, like the mind-body? And the second thing was, when you're talking about primary care, it's interesting to me because, at least my personal experience, is that you connect with your primary care, like you said, and you'll see these other you know, specialists. But what's happened in the system that we have here in the States is then your primary care could be different each year. So there's a disconnect with keeping that continuum like you're talking about from your childhood to your adulthood. So two things here. Yeah. Um, and, and so, I mean, first of all, like that, you know, when we think of the continuum of care, sort of like the ongoing care, that's how it should work, right? Like in primary care, you should, if you don't sort of think of like that old kind of idea of like the family doc, you know, that they, they 
take their black bag and they go visit you at home. The whole family knows them. That's sort of really what we want it to be like. You know, your, your primary care team, actually, and then we can talk about that, should be someone that you know and that you stick with for years that follows you also and, and your evolving healthcare needs. Um, so that's really what we want to get to. And when there is disrupted care, when we move around a lot or when we can't afford care, so we have to kind of pause and come back to which is a lot of people are facing it interferes in that and interferes in that relationship um and you know so so, so that that's kind of a, a difficult thing too right now this is not sort of um that kind of primary care um you know high quality care is something we're still striving towards and working towards um and and you know then and i think sort of we'll, where we'll get to is sort of integrating care of integrating primary care with behavioral health particularly and that's something that's still a while away and really not quite the norm just yet yeah, well, you talk about that particularly um, with us. I think this is one of the things that we are so fascinated by is integrating behavioral health, you could call it also mental health, um, with primary care and within primary care. Yeah, um, so that's that's to me the most interesting thing. So early in my experience when I worked in primary care, um, it was sort of, um, um, it was an unusual thing at the time, but I was essentially kind of like co-located or, or sort of, sitting next to um, the primary care doc, the primary care nurse, the other people on the primary care team. And so it was nice because when a, a patient would come in to see their primary care doctor, if they had some sort of, um, you know, like you said, behavioral health, so thinking of like depression or a substance use condition, um, they could get sort of easily routed right to me because my office was right down the hallway. We all worked on the same kind of system. And, and that was nice. Um, but there's actually a deeper level of, of sort of integrating primary and behavioral health care. And, and really what I mean by that is, is that we actually, we don't just sort of refer to each other, we work uh, as a team around you, as a patient around your needs. So let's say that you, um, let's say you don't even have depression, but you have a chronic medical condition like diabetes, which many people have, um, and diabetes itself is trying, right? You. Uh, you know, not only do you have to sort of cope with the symptoms of, of the of that of that disease, but also there's um, when it's being well treated. Sometimes you have to um, check your blood sugar regularly and do little finger sticks. You may have to, if you're insulin dependent, inject uh, insulin. Uh, there, there's uh, there's quite a process that's involved in that, and that's trying too. So, in a really integrated system, as a psychologist in integrated care. Um, I would I would be focused on the same things that your primary care doc is focused on. So I'd also be helping you with managing your diabetes the same way they are. If depression also comes into the picture, I'd work with your primary care docs so that we're both trying to do what we can to manage your depression similarly. So it's really um, working with you as a whole sort of single person and kind of rotating around your needs um, as a team. Yeah, I was thinking when you bring up diabetes, um I wouldn't I would say some people don't even recognize, which is very important, the emotional side of that. You're changing your lifestyle, things that you can't do. Um, and it's more of, and also the time factor when you see a lot of primary care physicians, they don't have time. So it's basically the prescription, okay, got to go next, you know, next patient. So you're not really treating the whole patient there with the emotional side of that um, issue of whatever illness it is you're struggling with. Yeah, it's 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 uh it seems so like it should be such common sense, and I think that's part of what's so frustrating about 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 this. At least I've you know I've been talking about this for years, and a lot of my colleagues have. But if you think back to like um, 
like like 300 BC, uh, uh, Hippocrates, you know, sort of like made this sort of famous declaration that that the mind is not sort of uh, in the mind and body are not these two parts, and that we're you know we're sort of the sum of our of our various parts. And this was like this revolutionary idea. Um, but you could argue other other folks, you know, before philosophers have been saying this too. And yet, uh, this still has not taken hold. You know, we still we still sort of like actually bisect care. Um, you know, if you have, uh, you know, sort of mental health needs versus physical health, you should, you know, right now the way we do it is we say, well, go across town to get your behavior, you know, your mental health needs met, and then go to the other side of town to a different, you know, provider altogether or take a referral to go get your physical health needs met. And, and we know that's not how it works. Like you said, diabetes, like that is a great example of where our emotions, our body, um, our coping are all linked together. And if one falls out, um, the others will all suffer too. That reminds me a lot of uh, Dr. Mate, who we've talked about on the podcast before. And he talks a lot about how our emotional health affects our physical health and can cause physical um, you know, sickness and disease. Stress can cause those things. And I think this comes back to, you know, as you're saying here, it's very interesting that somehow we have decided that these are all separate because they're just not. I mean, our mental health, our emotional health, um, all of that plays a part. I mean, our brain is a part of our body, right? <laughs> so, I mean, it does play a part in how we feel physically. Um, I want to ask you, would you say that the problem come from in education? Are, are you taught that the mind and the body are separate? And then are we, as a society, are we kind of just not wanting to go there. Come, I mean, obviously, I think differently, but generally speaking, are people seeing it like you're saying as these two separate avenues? <laughs> I I think so. As a human in the world, I think we usually talk about it. As, we, we don't tend to blend these conversations together. Um, you know, when as I was a when I was a kid growing up in the world, and you know, myself, you know, we're all patients, right? Um, when I go get care, my primary care doc wasn't usually asking how I was right. really doing, right? Um, it was sort of maybe a, a passing conversation, but they, when I fill out my symptoms checklist, there wasn't a whole lot of questions about my emotional functioning. Um, and and it is almost a product of training too. So we're certainly, um, you know, although we, we learn some of these philosophies, we're not really uh, um, learning at a core level. Like when we take biology, for example, as, as kids, like we're not learning about sort of the connection between um, um, our, our bodies and our minds, right? Like you're if you think about it, you know, the same neurotransmitters, the same chemicals that regulate your uh, mood as far as like sadness or happiness, there's actually more of those, um, the receptor sites, the sort of receivers of those chemicals in your gut than there are in your brain. Um, so when you think about how stressed you are and, and you're, you know, your, your stomach gets upset and all that, like we all sort of fundamentally know this and yet like we just don't connect it. And when, when most uh, psychologists or social workers or behavioral health people are trained, um, they're trained in one place. And when most nurses and docs and, and, and sort of physical health providers are trained, they're trained in a whole separate school. They don't usually meet each other. Um, they're not usually training side by side, certainly not until at least recently. So they're not even integrated. They're not taking each other's classes usually. Um, we're really taught to sort of be like, well, that's out of my scope. That's kind of over there. Um, my job is to sort of know that that exists so I can make a referral. Um, you know, we don't even learn side by side, let alone practice side by side. You know, that reminds me, um, I had, uh, I was working with a primary care, a I had a direct primary care 
PA that I was working with here in Atlanta. And I found her because I was just overwhelmed with how expensive uh, the insurance was at the time. And it just didn't make sense because I'm relatively, I'm relatively young and healthy. And I'm like, I don't want to pay this much money for insurance whenever I don't go to the doctor very much. So I found out about this direct primary care thing. And I, I've been working with her for several years. She's not in practice anymore because she got COVID and what have you. But it, it makes me think uh, a little bit more about what you're saying when it comes to like, what does this integrated care really look like? So I'll tell you, like when I first sat down with her, I sat down in the chair across from her in the room, not at the table, not like an examination room, but just chairs face to face. And we talked for 40 minutes. And we just talk to each other. She's like, tell me about you. Tell me about your life, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, this is exactly what I'm looking for because this is exactly how I think about things because you can't separate me and my life and my emotional life and my past history and all that. You can't from my own physical health. And so I imagine, and Andrew, tell me if this is along the same line, that if I was working with a therapist, if it was she and my therapist talking to each other, and then if I had to go see another specialty doctor, dermatologist, whatever it is, them all collaborating together. Is this kind of the idea of integrated care? That is the idea. So it, it's not only what's happening like with you right there as a patient, but it's hap what's happening kind of behind the scenes too. None of us like, I mean, that, that uh, none of us want to go and sort of tell our story over and over and over again to different people, right? Especially when it's really for the same needs, it's for our health needs. Um, and then also sometimes, like we probably also had this, uh, I certainly had this experience with different doctors where they sometimes disagree or they're not on the same page. Um, I have patients, when I, especially uh, in primary care, um, I'd often find that many of my patients uh, didn't even know what medications they were taking or why. And they had many different medications that were prescribed by different doctors, right? Like, um, um, you know, if you sort of think of, uh, you know, particularly as people age in this country, we tend to just sort of pile in more medications. I'm not anti-medication by any means, but um, I would sort of, I got into the practice of asking my patients to actually just bring in all of their medications. I said, uh, you know, like, put them all in a bag, you know, empty out your medicine cabinet and just bring them to your next appointment so we can just kind of sort through them. Because when I'd ask them that, you know, they're like, I don't know what this is called, I take it because, well, my doctor told me to take it and that's why I take it. But then, you know, Dr. Stevens over here that I see from my heart tells me to take this one and I don't exactly know why I take that either. And I was like, oh my gosh, and, you know, if they're not talking, who knows if these medications are interacting, if they're even good for you. So they bring in their medications and it was usually like a, um, uh, like a small shopping bag uh, and sort of I dump it out on my desk there uh, and and uh, and we'd go through them one by one and that's exactly what we found that most of my patients and, and when I say my patients I mean people like us um, don't have a full understanding of what we're taking and why and oftentimes we're being prescribed medications or given treatments by providers who don't even communicate um, so so you may be taking one medication that helps with your depression you may be taking another one you know, for your kidneys, it actually elevates anxiety. Um, you need to be taking another one that shouldn't be taking the same, and it's all very confusing. So that's just one example. But yeah, optimally, um, I'd be working in the same office as your primary care doc. They, um, you know, he or she, they and I would be meeting actually separately about you to make sure that we're coordinated on your care, that we have the same um, approach and goals um, that you do. Um, and that we're all really working um, in tandem for your needs. Um, you know, like I said, that's you know, like the diabetes is another, and sleep is another one, right? Like if I am telling you uh, that you know um, become uh, 
uh, drinking a bunch of coffee or taking um, uh, something like, let's say, uh, a sleeping pill, for example, is not actually the best way long term to resolve your sleep problems. But then you go and see your primary care doc and they say, oh, just take this pill before bed. Um, we're giving totally contradictory information, partially because of our training backgrounds. And what do you do with that as a patient? Um, so it's, it's a tough spot. Yeah, do you think the system, I try to be empathetic that the system we have doesn't even work for the physicians because I think there's pressure like with the administrative stuff and like you said, insurance. Because I get the impression sometimes and they're well-meaning, they're so busy that I have to go, whoa, like because I'm probably an anomaly, I'm advocating for myself. I get out like my pen and my little notebook and I start saying, okay, can you explain this and can you educate me on that? But I haven't always done that. And I'm sure a lot of people don't because they don't know, they don't have the time. So as you're saying, you're taking multiple medications or you're getting different information from, you know, doctors that we have uh, all grown up to trust. If you have the MD, you know, you say, well, th this doctor knows more than me. And so I think that's where we're losing that holistic idea that you're talking about. Yeah, it's actually, it's reinforced by both sides, right? Like as sort of general people of the world, I think we're sort of taught and raised through media, through sort of um, just the world and our upbringing to trust um, our sort of trust the person in the white coat, right? Um, and and that could be doctors, it could be nurses. Nurses are actually the number one most trusted profession, um, which wow. which makes a lot of sense. I love nurses. Um, so so, um, but you know, we sort of, well, doctor's orders, right? Like that's what it is. and. Um, you know, there's a lot of good logic behind that. They, they do know a lot and they spend a lot of time in school. Um, but uh, the problem is that we're actually the boss as the patient. Uh, you know, like you can tell me all you want to, uh, I should be exercising, I should be eating this, I should take this pill at this time of day or whatever. But um, the only way anything is going to happen is if I choose to do it. Uh, so, so the sort of notion of a partnership between the provider and the patient and actually putting the patient in the driver's seat um, is really fundamental to integrated care. Um, and it's sort of like if, if the patient were the boss, how would they want their care to be? And I think it's what you just described. It's like, I would want all my doctors talking to each other. I'd want them doing all this work for me. I would want them traveling across town to take care of me, not me having to go all the way across. You know, like it would really be care that revolves around me. And I think that's actually the best way to deliver it. Yeah, it's an, an empowering position for the patient versus yeah. a like, I don't know what to do. Tell me what to do. I mean, I, I've talked about this on the podcast before, but it kind of reminds me, I, I come back to it, Sonia, of the difference between uh, Montessori education <laughs> and public education. You know, it's like in public education, people are standing there telling you what to think to the students, you know, telling the students what to think. In Montessori education, it's this student-centered experiential learning and patients are going to be way more interested and committed to what they're doing with you, the doctor, if they're the ones that are like, hey, I would like to do this. And if they know they're the ones in the driver's seat, this is your body. It's your life. What do you want? You know, that's yeah. going to be a much more effective uh, process. Something that, um, Andrew, that you said that really hit me was this idea of the medication. So I'll tell you why. Because I would think the doctor, obviously the doctors have studied, they know. So say you're taking one medication that's going to affect the liver maybe, but the other one's the exact. Like I want that information because then you make a decision or the doctor's saying, well, the reason you're taking this is it's the benefits outweigh the risk kind of thing. Because a patient isn't going to do that deep dive, I don't think. I mean, even myself, you can, this is where we need the expertise. Like you said, to analyze 
So you've got everybody getting together, your team, and then the team presents to you as the patient and you can say, yeah, or no, or, you know, I want to do it differently or whatever, but we need to be, we need the information. Yeah, exactly. You need the information and then you need to, then we need to honor your decision. And that's, I think that's something that in healthcare um, we struggle with. Uh, so something that, something that used, an example of what used to happen. So I, we'd have a patient come into our primary care clinic and they, um, like many Americans, would have just a, a, a list of different things, of different conditions. Um, usually uh, there was some sort of mood condition like depression. Um, um, maybe they had a, they were working on weight management. Uh, they also may have had something like diabetes, perhaps a pain condition, they had back pain or knee pain that was also making it hard for them to move and exercise. And they were on different medications for all these different things. And so if you, regardless of who came in the room, if we, if we you know, and I think sometimes we do this well intention. We sort of say, "Well, what's going on today?" They sort of tell you their chief, you know, their chief complaint is the term we use in medicine for it. Um, their sort of main thing that they're concerned with, but they're usually picking that based on who they're talking to. And so, if you step back and say, "Okay, so I see you've got all these different things going on. You, you know, your your blood sugars. You know, from our perspective, it's kind of a little all over the place. You know, you, but you're also telling me you're in pain. You also mentioned you're not sleeping that well. That you're not feeling good. You know, you're feeling sad a lot of the time. So I, I sort of assemble that all for you as the patient." And I hand it back to him and say, so of all that stuff that's going on, what do you actually want to work on today? Um, what would be, you know, if you look out into next week, into next month, if there's one of those things that we can change, right, or really work on changing, which one would be most meaningful to you? And as, as healthcare providers, uh, myself, I'm often surprised by what my patients would say. So although from my perspective, um, you know, their biggest concern because of their labs, for example, was their diabetes because their, their A1C, the measure of sort of diabetes was, was very high. Um, they would actually say, well, you know, actually, if I, could, if I could get a good night's sleep, I would just, then I feel like I could, you know, concentrate on taking the medication or I could feel like I can even remember what you're telling me. Or they'd say, actually, I know my health is, I've got problems with my health, but being with my granddaughter is actually the thing that's most important to me. And and I know you told me all this stuff's going on, but actually, if I could just be able to keep up with her and, and take her to the park, you know, so I wasn't in so much pain, I could do that, that, that would make my life so much better. I, and so when we integrate care, um, it gives us the suite of options, and I can then focus on that concern. The other stuff tends to follow. If I can get you more functional, if I can get your mood better, if I can get you feeling healthier, you feel more empowered to take care of the other stuff versus this constant tug of war of every time you come in, your doc is telling you, well, you need to lose weight or you need to quit smoking. Meanwhile, you've got a whole other priority. So again, it's like, we call this patient-centered care, but it's putting the patient in the driver's seat. You know, you are the boss. You tell me what you're ready to work on. And because we have an integrated suite of both behavioral health and physical health services right here, we're ready to go. I'll work on that with you. And then we're all going to work together to make sure the other stuff follows too. Yeah. Um, you know, this is interesting uh, to hear you just give out these examples of what it looks like. I think it's probably helpful for the audience too. You know, I, I also know that, you know, in some of our initial discussions, you mentioned um, that a lot of times uh, any kind of antidepressant drugs are prescribed most of the time uh, by the primary care physician and not so much by a psychologist. And I wonder if you would talk a little bit about that and um, how maybe integrated care could could help that and maybe what some of the harms are, or, or let's call it advantages of doing it a different way would be. 
Yeah, you know, there's a lot of complexity in this. So, so um, actually, you can get into all sorts of specifics. Technically, psychiatrists most often prescribe uh, a psychology. Anyway, uh, the main thing is, so if you think of sort of the world of behavioral health, so like a, let's say a mental health clinic where you might find a psychiatrist or who's, a, who's an MD that prescribes medication, a psychologist who in some states prescribes, but usually does more like psychotherapy, um, social workers who also help with, with, with counseling. Um, and then, you know, your primary care clinic where we focus on your physical health. Uh, um, interestingly, because most Americans get their care in primary care, uh, um, that's also where they get their behavioral health needs met. So that's where I may kind of an off chance mention to my primary care doctor, like, oh yeah, I haven't been feeling so good. You know, my, my wife just died or, you know, I'm going through something and they, they'll write me a script or, or, or a prescription for an antidepressant. So actually more than 70% of, of medications for mood, for, for, for mental health conditions are prescribed in primary care, much more than are actually prescribed by a psychiatrist or anyone else in behavioral health. Um, partially because so much more of care, the care is happening there, um, which is interesting. And there's nothing wrong with it, actually. That's great. That means that I'm getting your some of your needs met where you're presenting, where you're showing up for care. So it's one less trip you have to make. The only trouble is that, um, you know, having spent years working, like we were like shoulder to shoulder in the same office, in the same room, our desks were next to each other with lots of primary care doctors and, and traveling around the country and, and, and training primary care folks. What I've heard many times, and, and there's evidence to show, most primary care providers, and I use that term to it can include nurses, physicians, um, traditionally aren't trained in treating the, like behavioral health conditions like depression, anxiety. That's not really where they spend most of their time. And there's actually a great deal of um, anxiety itself amongst um, um, medical providers in treating depression and anxiety because they feel like they weren't really prepared for that. And it's not just that they weren't prepared for it. Um, you need to follow up when you prescribe someone an antidepressant or a medication for anxiety. You can't sort of drop it for them and say, come back next year for your next visit because they're the host of symptoms and what was going on in the first place. But primary care providers aren't always set up to see someone every week the way a psychologist might or every other week. Um, so it's not only that they don't necessarily know how to do it. It's also just that their ecosystem doesn't support it. So it makes it stressful for them. And then in you as a patient, it's hard to sort of say everything you need to say to really get your behavioral health needs met when you've got a 10 minute visit with somebody. Um, what do you think the are the barriers for us doing this like all across the board in the US? Yeah, it, it, um, there's a there's a number of them. It's actually a lot easier said easier said than done. Um, sort of makes sense like, oh, just sort of implant um, right. psychologists in, in primary care clinics everywhere, social workers or something. And, you know, we can kind of just all work together. And in some ways, we've been doing this now for, for years, for decades and decades. A, a big push for it was um, back in the early 2000s, in, or about 20 years ago, actually, in, in the military, uh, in the Air Force. And it sort of proliferated. And some of the work I've done in the past was sort of traveling around to different bases and training them in integrated care. But um, a big barrier to doing this kind of in the civilian, you know, the places where we go for care is the cost. Um, you know, there's different sort of rates of reimbursement depending on what type of um, clinician you are. Like if you're a social worker versus a medical doctor, the rates are different. Um, and sometimes there's even regulations that, and this is actually just recently changing, that, that prevent us from billing even for treating your mood and your uh, or physical conditions on the same day. It's like ridiculous. So it's, oh it's, it's expensive. Uh, sometimes you have to change the physical space, right? Like if I'm a, 
if I have a behavioral health clinic where I treat people for things like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and I want to now incorporate physical health treatment into that setting, um, I have to put some money into it. I have to build out like exam room spaces. There's regulations that, that govern these things. Um, so, so there's costs. Um, um, payment hasn't, the reimbursement system hasn't caught up to this yet. Mm -hmm. There's training, you know, like we don't necessarily know how to work together. Um, you know, I wasn't trained how to give a quick five minute um, kind of differential diagnosis to a primary care doctor the way that they speak and to use their language in the same way uh, of the opposite. So there's training, understanding how to work together, um, understanding how to conceptualize a patient's needs in the same way. There's the, the cost of it. And then there's the infrastructure. Some of that's actually what we support at Primary Care Development Corporation. But um, to really get a good system going like this, even when you have the money, it takes a few years to get the culture, to get the systems, the technology, and everything in place. We're getting there, but still probably less than 40% of, of, of primary care is really co-located with behavioral health. I remember you mentioning to us too that the we're really lacking in the rural areas. And then also the, yeah, that we have limited, I don't know what the numbers percentage of people even going into mental health, uh, you know, psychologists, psychiatrists, counselors. Yeah, yeah, those are two different, two big issues. So, um, you know, in rural, I, I, although I'm, I'm based in New York here, um, we do a lot of work in all around the country and including in places like, uh, some, of my, some of my favorite uh, folks I work with are actually out in, in Idaho and Wyoming. Um, but these are also the areas where there are the greatest shortages of providers, especially of behavioral health providers. Um, so psychologists, social workers. Um, there was, a, and we talked about this before, there was, a, I, I was speaking at a, at a conference out in Wyoming a few years ago, and we were talking about this idea of, well, just refer someone out and, and we'll get them seen, even if you can't provide it, you know, their care right in their clinic. And someone stood up and said, I'm the only behavioral health provider for six hours in my state. Crazy. So it's not even like, well, you know, even if you can't be seen in primary care, we'll just refer you to the to the psychologist. Like, that's going to take up, I mean, six hours. That's there's no way you can do this very often. So um, there is a shortage, and the system that kind of is designed to churn out uh, mm -hmm. people like me, um, also primary care docs. Um, there's problems there too. Um, it's very competitive to get in. So, like, if let's say you want to be uh, a clinical health psychologist and get a PhD and do all the right things and then go off and see patients. It's a long process. You know, you're talking like another 10 years or so, basically like from getting into getting out and it's very competitive. Like you sort of like they accept about 4% of applicants. Once you go through six years of training now, uh, usually, uh, about a, a quarter of, of sort of people who've completed their, their clinical psychology program get into a mandatory, additional year of internship, meaning a quarter, um, two thirds get in, meaning a quarter don't and have to reapply the next year. And there's similar problems in medical residency. So there's not enough kind of post school training positions to support everyone. And that also limits who's practicing in healthcare. Um, not all of us have the advantage of taking years off of our life to not really be earning a significant income. Um, this is part of what contributes to a lack of representative people. So um, if I'm in a, um, right here in New York, right, we have a lot of communities that are predominantly diversity, um, diversity. Yeah, Latinx, we have uh, black communities, and we, there's evidence that shows that the care you get is actually better if it's provided by someone who looks and speaks like you do. So we need more diversity in care because it actually provides better care. And yet it's, we have these incredibly difficult systems that are also expensive. You know, we have medical students who are coming out 
with two, three, four hundred thousand dollars in debt. And primary care is one of the least sort of lucrative places to practice. So that's another issue. You know, we have, um, you know, we have basically a, a system that um, makes it extremely costly to go through the education to practice in medicine and then doesn't reimburse well in the area of primary care where we need the best people. Um, so there's many different factors that are all playing here. That's a lot. That is yeah. it's hard to, it's a hard problem to solve, right? And that's why it's taking us so long. Mm. Um, but these kinds of conversations, I think, are part of what get us there. Because I don't think most people realize all the things that are going on in the background that make it so freaking frustrating mm -hmm. just to get your basic needs met. Wow. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I know um, Andrew Yang talked a little bit about how, um, you know, primary care and this kind of backlog that you're describing with, for doctors and how difficult it is. And then it's, it's pays better if you're a specialist yeah. and then people don't become primary care providers and we don't have enough of those. And then you think about the, about COVID and coronavirus and how many people are seeking therapy right now who probably wouldn't have before. And it's like, Whoa, our system is slam man, like jam to the max. And we got to find some solutions for that too, because uh, that's kind of important. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it's it's um, actually like really gut wrenching thinking about people who who are trying to do the best they can to take care of themselves and, and, and can't they cannot get appointments, um, and that is damning not only for for us as patients but actually for the healthcare system and our government. When people don't get the care they need eventually their care is going to get really expensive. You put off taking care of your diabetes or your pain or, or your depression, and then you end up in the emergency department. Now we're talking about care that's um, thousands of dollars a day. When I mean, well, I could take care of you for 200 bucks in primary care earlier on, you're happier and I'm um, getting a lot better deal as a healthcare system, frankly, in taking care of you. Um, so, so, so those are huge problems. Um, and, and one of the things that we know about integrating care is actually it results in, in, in decreased costs and it also increases access. So that what you were saying about like having to wait so long, whether it's waiting six weeks to see your primary care doc or waiting three months to see me, if you, uh, integrate me in, if you integrate me and your primary care doc together into the same clinic, working on the same records and, and treating the same individuals, I can actually, we can offset each other and actually be more efficient and effective. So for example, um, there's primary care, primary care docs I've worked with um, in, over the years who there's a, there's a small number of patients who have very complex needs. Um, um, they have a lot working against them, frankly, um, and their health uh, is a challenge. So they need, they need a lot of frequent visits to help them remain um, kind of compliant or sort of adherent to their treatment that they need to be taking. They need a lot of support. And so they're going to that primary care doc very frequently, sometimes like uh, even weekly if they can get a visit. As a health psychologist, I can take that some of those visits actually myself and help that person because a lot of it's just following through uh, on the necessary treatments or coping with it or helping them more effectively manage their chronic medical condition. Or sometimes actually, um, actually the vast a majority of primary care visits have no explainable diagnosis that's physical. Um, so a lot of times we're going to see a primary care doc when actually our needs are more stress related, like what we we're talking about with that kind of mind gut connection. Um, so uh, we can actually alleviate each other um, by working together and by having that nice clean handoff for our patients. Um, so I can actually, by locating me and the primary care doc together, 
actually take some of that burden off the primary care doc. So now more appointments are opened up with your PCP so you can get seen when you are having respiratory symptoms and things that have a clear kind of critical you know, urgent need. And meanwhile, more of those chronic needs are shared by people like me who are frankly less expensive, we're more accessible, um, and we're trained to, to work in these, in these kinds of um, areas. So it's good for the system, it's good for the patients, um, and actually it even increases uh, the satisfaction of providers in those systems. It's good for society, dude. Yes. Yeah. Good for good all for humanity. Yeah. Yeah, good for humanity. I mean, think about uh, overall. Hey. On on healthcare and people are happier. Sorry, Sonia. That's good. That's good for everybody. How how is that bad? It's and we're spending less money. We if we put people off and don't take care of them, we're going to spend more money as a society. It it seems like a no brainer. Sorry, Sonia. Go ahead. Yeah. No, no. I was just going to say. You know, in this these times where we feel divided as a nation. I would say healthcare is, is amazingly something that everybody agrees on. And that's why we need to put our energies towards that because a healthier nation all is a more prosperous nation, you know, across the board. This is something that we as a society, that our culture, the cultural moment to shift, to think of it, I think as something that, oh, it's, you know, maybe I'm gonna get healthcare. No, everybody needs healthcare because we all benefit. From that, you know, it's the ripple effect. Well, what Andrew's talking about about the cost, and then there's the mental side. There's just a, it it makes sense, is what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah it's the right thing to do, um, and and we have to, and there's these connections that we have to recognize, you know, and, and we can, um, in some ways, we we have a lot of waste actually in in the healthcare system. There's this is like a huge, I mean, the amount of money, the billions and billions of dollars that go into our healthcare system is astronomical. Um, and actually, we're like one of the greatest spenders on healthcare of the entire world. And yet, um, and, and we're actually, we're also one of the least investors in like social needs um, compared to other countries. And, th- and that ratio does not equal actually better outcomes. We don't necessarily have better outcomes, even though we spend so much more money. And so if you understand core concepts, like for example, knowing that someone with a behavioral health condition is more likely to have a chronic medical condition as well, and someone with a chronic medical condition is more likely to suffer from something like depression or anxiety, we start to see where the overlaps are. And when you have two of those things or three or four at once, the cost of your care multiplies as well. And so when we can treat you in an integrated way, we actually slash the cost of care, not only for the system, but even for you as patients. Um, the per patient cost savings when you integrate care is about $860 a person per year. Um, and when you think of the millions of people in our country, that's savings of billions of dollars by doing this. It's an upfront investment, but again, we know that it pays off, but we have to recognize these fundamental connections between our mind and our body to kind of take a full circle. Um, and, and so it's not just that we need to, we do need to get everybody care. But the way that we're going to do that um, can't bankrupt our system. So we have to do it smart and doing and providing integrated forms of care is a way of doing it that makes it more realistic for the system um, and, and for us. Yeah, do you, if, for people listening, if they said, wow, I need, I need help, I need mental uh, health, you know, behavioral health, what would be your suggestion if they couldn't get it from their like primary care or through insurance? Are there other sources that someone could go to? Yeah, um, this is a 
a much bigger challenge than it should be. Um, uh, you know, you mentioned like if they can't get it through their insurance, you know, I, um, because I don't usually work in sort of mental health settings, I'm usually like the behavioral health person wherever I'm working. And so a lot of my colleagues will come to me and say, hey, you know, my daughter, my me, you know, my colleague, my friend, whatever needs some sort of, you know, mental health treatment, can you kind of direct us? It's a pretty complicated process. Um, you know, usually it starts with me sort of like, Taking this deep breath and be like, okay, well, what's your insurance? Um, you know, who, who, you know, who, you know, okay, let me get you a list of who takes your insurance. Now, what you're gonna have to do is call each one of them and ask them if they if they have openings to take a new patient and if they still take your insurance and then what your copay is gonna be and then you're gonna have to be, probably be on a wait list. It's like, oh my god, to even start the conversation um, again, assuming that you're not. So, so one really good um, system that's been put in place is federally qualified health centers or FQHCs. This is actually a, a federally subsidized program that makes sure that um, healthcare is available for people who um, would otherwise struggle to get it. Um, there's a rural version of this too in rural areas, um, but basically the mission is to make sure our safety net or with people who would otherwise fall through the cracks are cared for. And you can actually, um, if you just Google FQHC locator, and you just type in your zip code and it'll tell you where your nearest community health center is. And these places um, are um, among the most likely actually to offer both behavioral and physical health services. They also tend to integrate um, oral health, so like your dental uh, needs, which is actually a huge contributor to, to health conditions overall. You can also look on, um, there's programs actually since COVID has started, um, one, of, again, one of the other sort of like uh, bleak upsides of this is cities and states have gone to greater efforts to make um, behavioral health coverage and um, available. So like in New York City, for example, um, we were able to institute these like coping circles. Um, so pretty much like anyone who needed um, emotional assistance was essentially guaranteed some form of access. Um, you know, there's now uh, like hotlines you can call. Um, uh, 273-TALK is another one, the national um, crisis hotline. Um, so there's numbers that you can call as well. Um, and while this is all very encouraging, it still does not necessarily mean that it is easy to get linked up with ongoing treatment that meets your whole person needs. But it's getting better. Um, unfortunately, it's also getting you know better for the people who need it most, which is people um, you know in areas that are already discriminated against. You know, people of color, uh, people who are um, you know of lower income, uh, people who have challenges accessing education and employment. So that's really where we need to focus because those are the people who also tend to struggle most with their health. Um, they're suffering. It's expensive for our healthcare system. And again, integrated care is something that can really work to meet their needs too. Um, it's a way of being holistic and meeting kind of the human experience where it's most needed. Mm, very true. Wow, that's some awesome resources. I am so glad to hear some concrete stuff that's kind of emerged, it sounds like, uh, since COVID, which is great. So I'm glad to hear that, and I'm I'm hopeful that we're going to continue to work towards you know more and more solutions here. On the same note, I want to ask um, to, if you would talk a little bit about what you do know about um, primary care development uh, corporations work in this, and then just in general, where where are you seeing integrated care taking place? What does that look like right now? If there's numbers you can share on that, we'd love to hear that as well. Yeah, well, so um, Primary Care Development Corporation, again, our, our national nonprofit, um, 
we, a lot of what we do, that sort of big number that you mentioned, 1.2 billion, um, that's actually, in that, a lot of that money has gone to investing and actually building up the physical infrastructure of primary care in underserved communities. Um, so, so again, areas where it's harder to get care, you can kind of think of it as like a care desert. Um, so we actually invest uh, in those areas so that you can have a neighborhood primary care doc, so that you can have um, integrated care. So we've invested also in building health centers where we actually bring in two different organizations to now share a single building, a single facility, a single floor, shared offices. Um, and again, making sure that if you're a behavioral health provider, you can actually have those exam rooms in place um, so so we're investing in that um, where we see uh, you know the greatest amounts of kind of integrated care taking place um, right now it's sort of bi-coastal you know so it's kind of uh, you know it's sort of like the New York corridor here and, and then out in California um, also Texas is really taking off there's um, um, we're also offering, uh, so I'm not here to sort of like promote anything that we're doing, but I'll just say for those of for folks who are interested, we do a lot of free stuff. So we work with the federal government to make uh, education and training available and also state and city government um, and foundations available for free to a lot of uh, folks. So um, especially healthcare providers. So right now, if you go to um, like pcdc.org slash sleep, you'll find information about it's actually happening right now. We just um, um, have a new episode coming up soon, but we've had a year long uh, live virtual training series related to sleep. Like there, yeah, it's right there. Cool. So um, it's, it's all about how we can take an integrated approach to sleep. Um, so how physical health and behavioral health care providers can work with patients and families to get us sleeping better um, through behavioral training, through addressing like medication needs. Um, we also talk about um, disparities based on racism, based on classism and other things that are impacting the actual delivery of care. So these things are all free. You can view the recordings and then we have live episodes coming up throughout the year. We have other series on diabetes. Um, we have resources on chronic pain, but we also are doing a lot of advocacy work um, so we are advocate, advocating at every level um, to make sure that the problems that you described earlier, so not being able to find a provider, not being able to afford care, that we're making sure that the people who need are getting taken care of. We need to really, again, when we start talking about spending smart, again, we can't just, we will not solve this problem with money alone. Um, where we allocate our healthcare dollars that do come from government, that do come from insurance companies, it needs to be on this core access point of care. I'm making sure that people get primary care and physical health in the same place. So we're advocating for, for example, increasing the spend around primary care. We're advocating around, at, again, at the state and national level around bringing together physical health and primary care. So it's happening, um, again, kind of in those coastal areas, but also we're seeing it centrally. I talked about Idaho. We're working right now with an amazing health center out in rural Idaho. Um, who is who is also integrating care? So it's actually happening all over in little spurts, but it's what we're going to be seeing is that it's happening more and more and more and more. It starts usually by having some sort of just even a, a referral agreement. So at least I know, even if you're not, even if as a primary care doc, I don't have a behavioral health person in the same building or the same company, I've at least got a relationship with somebody on down the street that I can hand you off to, who I can vouch for and say, look, Doctor Philip was good. Trust me, he'll you know, and he'll report back to me, and we'll, we'll have a conversation. But then as it gets more and more advanced, it's becoming more like, okay, now I'm making an office um, for the behavioral health person in my primary care office. And then it's getting even better where we're saying, not only does this person have an office here, but actually we're working on the same patients on the same care plan. Uh, it gets to the point like in my in, when I practice primary care, 
I see patients on the exam room table in the same room that their primary care doc is seeing them because that's where they happen to be. I will go into the room and meet you there. Um, we really work around you. So there's these different kind of levels of integration, you could say. Um, and again, it's getting there. The map is kind of getting more and more colored. It's going to take some years, though. And again, smart investment uh, to really happen. That's so amazing. I love that. The, yeah. They're in the same room with you, with your primary care doc and me. That's yeah. amazing. That's, That's cool. amazing. It is. It's cool. And my favorite moments um, as a, you know, again, I've practiced in all these different types of, of medical settings and stuff and done and, and like traditional psychotherapy and the sort of more primary care model, brief models of care. The coolest moments of integrated care are when um, I, used to, I used to work for the, a veterans administration hospital. And so work a lot of veterans. Uh, uh, veterans are some of my favorite people, actually. That's one of the groups I think um, really need integrated care. Um, sometimes they also have a reputation for being um, um, not necessarily like the first ones to sort of open up and talk about themselves. Uh, it's a stereotype, but there's some truth to it, I think, uh, especially in some of the older generations. And so. Um, they'd be in there to get their regular primary care needs met, but also they were going through some behavioral health needs. And so I'd get, I'd get kind of literally pulled into the exam room by the, by the doc and they'd introduce me and the patient was like, nah, I don't need, I don't want to shrink. I don't need, I don't want to talk to you. I, listen, I, don't, I don't, I don't talk to mental health people. I don't, that's not what I need. And we're like, okay, well, you know, I'm, I'm right here. I'm literally actually across the hall. Um, you know, hi, here, I'll shake your hand and everything. I'll, you know, I'll make it, you know, easy for you. We'll just have a conversation. I'll actually be available right after this appointment. So they'll be like, ah, fine, I'll do it because I like my primary care doc. They'll walk over and we start having a conversation. And when they realize that, um, you know, I'm not necessarily sort of sitting back and not saying anything or practicing this like old timey model of like, well, tell me about your mother, you know, um, of having a real conversation that integrates both their physical health and their emotional needs. Um, it's amazing how people open up. And my favorite moments are when someone says, you're the only, you know, you're the first person I've ever told this to before. I would have never seen a psychologist before. I always thought you people were, you know, these horrible shrinks or whatever, you're trying <laughs> to play my head or play mind games with me. It's those moments, those are like the magic moments that happen in integrated care when you have someone who's gone 60 years with never opening up, with never having an honest conversation about their whole person needs. And simply because I was located there and because I was a trusted colleague of their family medicine doctor, that relationship happens and that can be transformative. And that's the stuff that gives me chills. And that's what's on the humanistic side. Um, that's what's really amazing about integrated care. We are acknowledging all aspects of your humanness. We're honoring that, we're respecting that, and we're giving you an avenue to grow, to become healthier, to thrive, to meet your goals, um, and to live a life that's ultimately you know, um, better, healthier, fuller. That's an advertisement for the holistic right there, you know, for being integrated and yeah, right there, yeah. that's powerful. Someone said that I would have never talked to you as a therapist. And then, then I'm sure they walk out there feeling so much relief and so much better in a way that they had no idea they could feel better. You know what I mean? That's I yeah. You've got folks, I mean, especially when you talk about someone with chronic pain, for example, like someone has like ankylosing spondylitis or this narrowing of their spinal cord, very common as people age. And so it's horribly painful. And, 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 you know, people tend to like, as we get stressed and as we have more and more pain, our shoulders tend to like, you know, I'm sort of like, I don't know if we have the podcast version, nobody will be able to see this. So it won't make as much sense, but like, you know, our shoulders kind of like start coming up to our ears and we just sort of walk, walk around like this. And it's just, it's a sign of someone who's stressed and who's in pain. 
And it's amazing when you sort of acknowledge it and you start talking through, sometimes people cry, sometimes it's like this sort of wash when you finally acknowledge how painful it is physically and emotionally and just living like that and coping like that day after day. And just in doing that and taking some deep breaths, my patients, their shoulders start to drop. They start to, you know, they may have cried, it may have been painful, they may be still suffering, but just having your humanity acknowledged and getting that out and getting to talk about it for the first time in years, suddenly their voice changes, their posture changes. They walk out of there with a lightness that they did not have when they walked in. And then again, they know that although life won't be easy, they've got a team behind them. They've got me, they've got their nurse, they've got their primary care doc, they've got their pharmacist, their social worker. Um, they're not going it alone. That is amazing. That's what I want for my care. That's community. Yeah. Yeah, sorry, I muted. That exactly. That's what I want for my care as well. I think every human being deserves it. And I can't I can't, you know, hear you say that and not draw attention to how how blatantly inhumane it is how we're living right now. You know, you realize what you just said was I just gave them some humanity for a moment and they felt a release. I mean, that should, is enough to tell us that what we're doing right now is not really working for us. In, in, and from a health perspective, you know, physical, mental, emotional, all of it for the long run. And that's what Fromm said in his writings. And that's part of why we, you know, Sonia and I are doing the podcast. But wow, that's a wake up call. Oh, that's like an alarm. You know what I'm saying? It, it takes, um, you know, happenstance for some people to just have some humanity and human interaction that where they can just feel release. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Like, I mean, life, you know, there's no sugarcoating, right? Like some of us are somehow blessed to just go through the world and we are just happy people and we have very few problems and we are grateful for all things and it's wonderful. But for a lot of other of us, life is tough. You know, like existence can be painful physically, emotionally, spiritually. Um, you know, this is not an easy sort of existence. Uh, you know, we certainly these last you know year or so we've seen that. Um, and so, whatever we can do to help alleviate suffering, to have a legitimate the conversation we're having right now, like I am thriving off this legitimate connection we are in this very second. That's transformative. This kind of stuff is healing, and this is what we can make our healthcare feel like too. Yeah, a hundred percent. Well, my gosh, Andrew, this has been amazing. I have really, really enjoyed talking to you. I'm sure our listeners have enjoyed it. Donia, have you enjoyed it? Oh my gosh, it? It's, uh, it's been incredible. I love connecting um, and having this, you know, getting the testimony from you, what it's like on the ground, and then hearing, I guess, what the possibilities are and what the challenges are. So hopefully we've made a difference that people will think differently and that our culture will start to incorporate this holistic way of, you know, a way of doing care. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for what the organization is doing. Um, is there any way that people can support you guys if they're interested as we wrap up? Uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, the easiest way to get a hold of us, check us out, pcdc.org, pcdc.org. Um, uh, you can do everything from make a donation to just learn, get better at health, uh, become an advocate. Um, you can follow us on our journey for bringing healthcare to those who need it most and building up health equity. Um, 
And again, you, you can partner us with in all sorts of ways. So check us out there. Um, um, I think you've, you've shared our Twitter. So um, my, I'm very active on Twitter. I'm a little bit of a Twitterholic. So I'd love to connect with folks there. Um, there's a whole community of us who are focused on integration. Um, and we're quite active and passionate. Uh, so we're all, everyone who kind of cares about integrated care kind of talks like this. So <laughs> now let us know what you're doing too. Um, so that's, that's Awesome. We'll do it. Well, thank you guys. Uh, thank you, Andrew. And thank you all for listening and being with us. We hope you have a great rest of your Saturday. Thank, thank you, you so Manny. Thank, thank you, Manny. You so much. Goodbye, everybody. <laughs>